What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Tesla. Tesla is more than a manufacturer of electric vehicles. It is more than a stock, which is currently down about eight-tenths of a percent, trading at $377. It is more than a company that was founded by Elon Musk, who holds nearly 20% of the shares. Tesla is also a company that has $8.6 billion worth of debt. And here to tell us about that debt and the various bonds that the company has issued is Joel Levington, our senior credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And he joins me here in our 1130 studios. Joel, it is always a pleasure. I, I was going to say the best way for me to do this is just to say, tell us everything we need to know <laughs> about what is going on with Tesla bonds because they run the gamut of maturities. There are some that are maturing this year. Yes. And there are a lot of interesting details in the bond covenants, which actually were affected by yesterday's tweet. Yes. Tell um, us. I, w- I would say three things. One, uh, the immediate effect uh, is that $3.3 billion worth of their convertible uh, debt went into the money yesterday off the news with the stock rose above uh, the $358 threshold where uh, where those bonds trade. And that includes $920 million uh, that comes due next March. So from a liquidity standpoint, the immediate impact is positive. The second- so Wait, 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 just oh. explain that for people. So this $920 million mm-hmm. is no longer debt. Doesn't have to be. Right, it can be converted into equity. And okay. th- that's true for all, all of it, uh, mainly in the 2021 and 2022 issues, uh, as well as the slug uh, next March. And so that would be number one. Uh, number two, to your point about the covenants in the 2025 bonds, which are in the Bloomberg Barclays indices, they have a change of control provision. And that provision says that a change of control uh, must include a controlling investor owning 50%, uh, which initially... I think people thought that that is what was going to happen when uh, Mr. Musk said that I am going to take Tesla private or I'm considering taking Tesla private. The pronoun I being important there. Y- yes. And then uh, he changed He changed his language slightly to there will be no controlling investors. So that would keep the unsecured bonds that they have outstanding or theoretically that would keep it uh, outstanding in a privatization. And so then it becomes... Well, what does that mean for those bondholders? And for that, I would go to point three to say, look, the issue here would be structural subordination. If they issue secured debt, that will get the the unsecured notes will get primed, meaning that the secured debt will be on top on the capital structure 
then these bonds in the Bloomberg Barclays Indice, and then the equity uh, owners. And uh, when you look at that relative to what rating agencies have done in the past with structural subordination, it could mean uh, one to two notches worth of downgrade. So that would be step one. What does that mean in terms of value for the bonds? The value uh, would be if I look at triple C bonds, which is where that might head, uh, would mean about an 8% yield for a 2025 uh, in the triple C zone. That is about 130 basis points wider than where we are today, which is equal to about five or six points. That would be a worst case scenario or how I would frame a worst case scenario. Now, it's true that nothing can happen because nobody has seen any of the financing or if uh, any if any debt will be issued at all. It could be all equity for all I know. Um, and of course, there's always a case where he might decide to call these bonds back anyway. Um, and the way that my math uh, looks at it would indicate that there's about a 15% chance that he would call the bonds in, about 45% that it would go to triple C and about 40 uh, that nothing will happen. That seems to be where the, the bond yields are today. Are the covenants that you've just described unusual? They're not unusual, but it is very unusual, uh, you know, as we come up on the anniversary of these bonds, uh, for a issuer of such weak credit quality to issue unsecured debt and issue with, um, you know, almost investment grade type covenants, very, very limited covenants. Yeah, but is it usual to have a actual stock price for the convertible bonds? What did you say? Three hundred and fifty-eight dollars a share, yes. and have the CEO of the company do something that would indicate a price for the stock that is higher in order to actually trigger that potential convert, and then remove that as debt from the balance sheet, so that you can then go out and issue more bonds. Well, Elon Musk is definitely not usual. Uh, I have never seen that uh, before in my 20 years of, of doing credit research. But, you know, 20 years ago, there was no Twitter. <laughs> so, no, no, clearly, I understand that. But I mean, 20 years ago, there were bonds and there were bond covenants. This is true. Uh, but I've never seen anybody uh, take uh, such a monumental uh, offering or potential action and just throw it out there on Twitter as if it's, you know, like a, a, just a general thought in his mind. Right. Uh, based on your experience, what would be the normal pattern of trying to take a company of this size private? Sure. Well, typically what I would expect is that the company would be issuing a press release uh, through an 8K filing uh, with the SEC. And that would outline you know, that they are investigating strategic alternatives. I think Mylan said something like that today as a very recent example, uh, ticker MYL. And you take it from there. You explain, here's the reasoning or here's the logic, and it will take this amount of time. Uh, it usually doesn't come out in you know a 61-character tweet. Thanks very much. Joel Levington, we always learn a lot. Senior credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, talking about Tesla and Tesla bonds. The topic right now is Tesla, and the shares of Tesla are down about three-quarters of a percent. It's coming after Chief Executive Elon Musk tweeted yesterday that he was planning and looking forward to bringing the company private at a price of $420 a share. 
Here to help us understand this more and get his reaction is Gordon Johnson. He is Managing Director, Alternative Energy, Metals and Mining, as well as Equipment Analyst for Vertical Group. And uh, Gordon, just to underscore, he has already a sell recommendation on Tesla with a price target of $93. Shares of Tesla currently trade at $376. Gordon, always a pleasure to hear what you've got to say. What, what was your reaction uh, when you saw or learned about the tweet from Elon Musk? Well, I, I got to tell you, Pim, and thanks for having me on. I mean, initially it was sheer excitement because it seemed to me like this was the nail in the coffin. Um, I mean, you got to think about this, right? Let's just take a step back. Just a few days ago, Elon Musk promised that they were going to be profitable forever, um, starting in Q3. Um, so why would he need to go private to end negative propaganda from the shorts? I mean, if they're going to be profitable forever, and he's saying he's going to go private at 420, I mean, the short covering alone would drive the stock to $500. I mean, you got to think about all the dynamics regarding an LBO. First and foremost, a leverage buyout, if you're a leverage buyout investor, what you're looking for most is EBITDA, or money generation for the com- from the company, to pay the interest on your debt and ultimately the debt. And we know that's not what this company does. And we know that these, um, you know, they, they rebuffed an investment offer from Saudi Arabia. So if you're passing the hat uh, for the largest LBO syndicate in history, why would you say no to a big check? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And when you think about the fact that this would be a 70 or 80 plus billion dollar deal, um, uh, you know, and, and that it's minutely choreographed. I mean, the legal legal risk for any party involved would be significant. So, you know, you're talking about, you know, uh, multiple in, in, uh, uh, lawyers that would need to be involved, multiple investment banks that would need to be involved. And we've heard nothing from any of these Tesla financiers or lawyers regarding a potential LBO. And just today we learned that, you know, uh, the, the board members are saying they just started talking about this last week. Listen, Here's the thing. The question is, if the SEC does their investigation or if they investigate and they decide there's wrongdoing here, will Tesla investors care? You know, if Elon Musk broke laws here, will they care? Probably not. But I think the bigger problem is if there's no real offer out there, if Elon Musk can't over the next few weeks show that there's a real offer out there, I think he has serious problems with respect to his current investors and, and, and credibility. And I think that's the real problem. And when you're thinking about, you know, even if Elon Musk rolls his shares and, you know, the share, you know, the, the, the employees roll their shares, you're still talking about 60 plus billion in capital that needs to be raised. You have two current investigations alleging fraud, both with Solar City and with the amount of Model 3s produced. You have a number of other potential issues um, uh, underpinning this company with respect to a potential SEC uh, Wells notice that may be out there. I know that people have said that's not the case, but if you listen to the question on the call, the analyst that asked the question did not ask Tesla, do they have a Wells notice? He said, do you have something that precludes you from raising capital, which is not the definition of a Wells notice? This just seems... I mean, quite frankly, ludicrous. And, uh, you know, that was our reaction yesterday. Okay. Is there a way that you can see Elon Musk actually completing a deal like this? Would it be, is there, I mean, set aside for just a minute your skepticism on a technical basis. Is this a deal that is just too big to get done or is it possible? I, that's a great question, Pim, but I don't even think it's about the size of the deal. Again, think about this. A leverage buyout is based on a company generating cash. So if you're an LBO investor, you effectively take debt in a company to take the company over. With the prospect being, they're going to generate cash to pay you back for that debt or pay you back your interest and then pay you back for that debt. When has Tesla generated EBITDA? Never. 
So why, as an LBO investor, would you be willing to go out on a limb and risk potentially, uh, you know, a huge default and wasting your money? I mean, it, it just doesn't make any logical sense. And I think that investors and the public and, you know, quite frankly, SEC needs to see this actual money that he says he has secured. Those two words, money secured, that he said, I think need to be proven out over the next days slash weeks. And we're highly skeptical that's going to be able to be the case. You know, it's like a very general question. Is there enough money out there to do this? Yes. But does it make sense? Absolutely not. Let, let LBO investors scrutinize bills much more than equity short sellers do. And I think that's what's gotten lost in a lot of this, you know, uh, you know story. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Gordon Johnson, Managing Director, Alternative Energy, Metals and Mining and Equipment Analyst for Vertical Group talking about Elon Musk's Twitter proposal to take Tesla private at $420 a share. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Stocks have gained this year. The S&P 500 is currently up nearly 7%. NASDAQ stops are, stocks are up nearly 14%. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average up just 3.5%. Here to tell us what to do with money is Chuck Lieberman. He is the Chief Investment Officer at Advisors Capital Management. He is also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He helps to manage more than $1.3 billion of customer assets based in Ridgewood, New Jersey. Chuck Lieberman, thank you very much for being with me. Maybe, uh, and I promise, I'm not going to ask you about Tesla, so you can put that <laughs> one to the side, right? I mean, that you know, there are other things in the world. Uh, tell us what you take away from all of the information regarding jobs and the health of the U.S. economy and how that translates into a strategy for investing money. Sure. Well, I think everyone agrees that the U.S. labor market is fairly tight. Uh, some people think there's uh, there are some people on the sidelines who could still be sucked into the jobs market, uh, but the data no matter how you look at it, it indicates pretty clearly that labor is scarce. We have more job openings than uh, uh, unemployed. The uh, unemployment rate is down at very low levels, uh, historically, cyclically low levels. Um, we're seeing 50-year uh, uh, lows in unemployment claims. So by every measure, labor is scarce. That's beginning to drive up labor costs. Uh, some people make the argument that labor costs are not rising that quickly. Uh, but if you look at uh, uh, the last five, six years, you can see that labor costs started to rise when the unemployment rate hit about 5%. So with the unemployment rate now below 4%, there's every reason to expect more upward pressure on uh, labor costs. And ultimately, that'll flow into inflation. So that gets to uh, the things to avoid and the things to play for. Uh, with a little bit higher inflation and solid economic growth, 
growth, you want to be in the cyclicals or companies that will benefit from higher inflation or higher interest rates or combination. And you want to avoid the ones that are susceptible to those uh, factors. So the susceptible areas are the bond market, especially long-term bonds, and especially high-quality long-term bonds that include utilities, real estate investment trusts, consumer staples. Those are all areas that we see as relatively vulnerable. And the areas that benefit are uh, financials, which benefit from uh, rising interest rates, uh, uh, energy and pipelines in particular, because they'll benefit from uh, uh, rising prices for uh, crude oil and more volume passing through pipes. Um, So those are all attractive areas. Let's talk a little bit about energy. What kinds of energy companies, if you can, specifically? Are we talking master limited partnerships? Are you talking about pure play energy companies, exploration and production, upstream, downstream? Where would you like to be? Well, it depends on the risk appetite and what the client needs. So if they need income, then midstream and downstream are great places to be because they generate a lot of income. Uh, The industry is still transitioned from uh, partnerships uh, and uh, incentive distribution rights to corporations. And uh, so that's creating a little bit of, of turmoil and uncertainty in the market. Uh, just explain if you can, Chuck, I hate to break in, but just explain yeah. what is going on, because this is an important point. It's it's a way in which uh, master limited partnerships have typically operated in the energy sector. And as you say, that's changing. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. So companies used to have these uh, sort of operations, daughter companies, spinoffs, however you want to describe them, and those companies would be structured as partnerships with the ownership either in the hands of the public or the parent, and the parent would typically uh, reap some benefits every time the dividend paid to the limited partners increased. So they were motivated to increase dividends for uh, for the investors, uh, but it also meant that the company had relatively little cash flow to finance investments. So the company would be required, really forced, to use the capital markets to raise capital to pay for capital investment. Uh, That became untenable when oil prices fell and stock prices fell and the cost of capital went up very dramatically. And so these companies are now being converted into corporations, and the entire partnership structure is is basically being thrown away or or gotten rid of. Uh, So more of these companies are going to operate like traditional companies where they're going to have to retain more cash flow, more profits in order to finance their investments. Okay. Great description. Tell us now about financial stocks. Do you want to be in banks? Do you want to be in regional banks? What kind of banking stocks or financial entities are important? Uh, Well, I think the regionals and the money centers are both attractive. Um, I happen to like uh, some of the money centers because they are so cheap. We're talking what, Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, Bank of America? Well, J.P. Morgan Chase is sort of the creme de la creme of the industry, and so it's the most expensive, but it's also the safest investment. Uh, Citi is the cheapest of the group. Uh, It's the least expensive. It's the most international of all the money centers. Uh, Is it cheapest for a reason? Well, I think it's cheapest because it's not as simple a story. Bank of America has a very large retail business. Um, 
Uh, it's very attractive, very cheap. Uh, City is cheaper still, partly because of its international exposure. Uh, I, I think there's a very rational case to be made for a mix of investing across all of those companies. Do you believe that higher interest rates will show themselves this year? Yes. How, How high? For, how's, how's that, I like that. That's succinct. You don't hear that often. Well, I'm trying to be straightforward. I appreciate uh, that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think we are going to see it. I think uh, at the margin, we're already seeing higher inflation. The Fed is going to continue to slowly, methodically ramp up policy rates, meaning another 25 basis points in September and another 25 in December. Uh, but we're, we're running out of room for us to be surprised by a shocking inflation number. I don't dismiss the possibility, but uh, it's already August. uh, So I I think we are going to get a number that is kind of a shock to the market. I think the market is very complacent about inflation pressures. And so I I think that that's going to be the, the big mover for the bond market. Give you about 20 seconds, Chuck Lieberman. You mentioned cyclical stocks. What about consumer discretionary? Uh, Some of those are fairly well-placed also. Uh, With so many households now employed, uh, unemployment so far down, consumers do have more discretionary income that they can afford to spend, and they're doing it. So uh, the discretionary retail space is extremely competitive, however. So you really have to look at company by company. Uh, I think the uh, cruise lines, as an example, are well-placed. They will do well. Uh, The retail space for clothing is just an absolute minefield. And so uh, some companies are losing out and others, like Amazon, are picking up share. Thanks very much. Chuck Lieberman, he is the Chief Investment Officer at Advisors Capital Management. He's also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He helps to manage more than $1.3 billion. The world of cryptocurrencies, for example, Bitcoin. Bitcoin now trades about 5.5% lower than it did yesterday at $6,480 for Bitcoin. Uh, Ripple is down about 12%. Ethereum down 4%. Litecoin down 7.25%. Here to help us understand a little bit more about the world of cryptocurrencies and their exchanges is Joe Marino. He is a partner in the White Collar Defense and Investigations Group at Cadwallader in Washington, D.C., but he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Joe, it is a pleasure. Thank you for coming in. Maybe just give people a little bit of your background so they understand where you're coming from and your level of expertise. Sure, Pim, and thank you so much for having me. So my background is as a federal prosecutor, and I specialize specifically in terrorist financing at Maine Justice down in Washington, D.C. And just to give a little background as to what we used to look at in terms of how individuals would funnel money to terrorist groups In the old days, it was cash, right? It was cash carried over the border, sometimes mailed in FedEx boxes. Then it was hawalas, right, which are these informal ways with very little documentation of moving money between parties as a way to avoid taxes, the regulators, the the IRS, the Treasury Department, and so on, and the FBI. And this would be electronic? Well, hawalas typically were kind of old school, you know, person to person. So maybe two persons in the U.S. would 
exchange money for the purposes of exchanging that same amount overseas. Got it. Mostly off the books. Well, now we're in a digital age. So now what we're looking at is largely unregulated, unbanked transactions through digital currency. And that is very much on the radar of federal prosecutors and regulators because they see this as really the Wild West. And it's a way for people to avoid taxes, to launder money from criminal enterprises potentially, and you know, e even to, to violate campaign finance and various different things. So it's very much on the radar of prosecutors and regulators when it comes to cryptocurrency, and again, there's so much promise to this technology, so it's a shame that it's gotten a bit of a blemish from some bad actors. But when it comes to regulators, I would characterize their view of cryptocurrency as ranging from highly skeptical to openly hostile because of these reasons. So what do you believe the government's process is in determining how to regulate or manage this market? Because as you just described, they're not agnostic at all. They're not agnostic. So if you are an individual, you can mine cryptocurrency. You can invest in cryptocurrency. You can buy and sell cryptocurrency. And the government will largely leave you alone, except for the fact that you have to pay taxes on it. And the IRS does consider Bitcoin and other types of cryptocurrency to be property. And they expect you to declare and pay capital gains tax on that. And a taxable event can come out in a number of different ways. It's not just when you buy or sell or trade the cryptocurrency. It's when you buy something. So if you bought Bitcoin at 100, it's now at 200, and you buy something at $200, the IRS sees that as a taxable event and expects you to pay short or long-term capital gains on that differential. So, but in general, if you're not in the business of exchanging cryptocurrency, you're largely off the government's radar. Now, if you want to get into the business of exchanging cryptocurrency, and either you're doing crypto for fiat currency, like dollars or euro, or crypto to crypto, like Bitcoin and Ether, and you do this on a regular basis as a business to take advantage of the spread, well, now the Treasury Department has made very clear it considers you a money services business. And what that means is it's a term of art under a statute called the Bank Secrecy Act from the 1970s. And what it means is you are now subject to registration. So if you don't register and you engage as an, a cryptocurrency exchange, you are operating an unlicensed money service business. If you do register, which you should, if you think you fall into this category, now you have a whole range of record keeping and reporting and audit responsibilities to FinCEN, which is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which is a part of the Treasury Department. And this comes to a surprise to a lot of companies, whether they be startups or traditional brick and mortar banks and broker dealers who want to get into the crypto space. Now, you said that this is something that the companies have to do. What are the, what are the responsibilities of the people who are actually running the companies. Well, so it often, and these often come to a surprise, a surprise to these people because now they have not just tax, not just treasury, but also even sanctions obligations. So you have to make sure if you're running a business now, you are not running afoul of the various laws that apply to traditional financial institutions. Again, traditional banks, they're accustomed to being regulated entities. They know for, for decades how to respond to treasury, how to respond to- They have audit. compliance divisions. Exactly, they have people exactly. with expertise such as yourself exactly. who I mean, they can call on. It's an entire industry, right? Not so much in the crypto space with these startup companies that are, you know, they're just, they're just figuring out the technology. They're getting into it. It's exciting. They're getting investors. They're getting customers. They are often shocked 
at the compliance and regulatory burden that's imposed on them. And this is not a sleepy industry, like I started off saying. The government is very much attuned to it. So they're looking to make examples. They're looking to delve into the books and records of these companies and figure out what's going on and are they in compliance. What are mixers and tumblers? Okay, so those are terms of art in the industry. They are specific technologies that provide for further anonymity. And there's red flags to be looked out for, right? So p part of the appeal of cryptocurrency is that it's largely anonymous, right? The blockchain documents the transaction itself. But tying people's names to those transactions can be difficult because there's no universal directory. So what mixers and tumblers do is they make it even more anonymous. Possibly that is appealing to Bitcoin users for whatever reason that they want to stay you know, off the radar. But to regulators, that's a red flag. So if I'm advising a client that's trying to get into the crypto space, I say, okay, if we're looking for red flags, such as transactions to be wary of or customers to avoid, any involvement of a mixer or a tumbler or any other technology that further anonymizes the transaction is something from the company perspective you want to be wary of. Do you believe that online gaming is an area that is specifically targeted by regulators to watch out for these kinds of red flags? It's definitely something that uh, is going to be on is is on their radar. So again, if you are triaging, you want to get into the crypto business, right? You want to think about what kind of counterparties, what kind of clients am I taking on? And an on online gambling company comes to you, it's one of those red flags. Doesn't necessarily mean they're doing something wrong. They could be in full compliance if they're offshore and they're running their business in compliance with the laws of whatever jurisdiction they're based in. But do you, as a U.S. company, as a bank or a money services business, want to be doing business with an online gambling company, knowing that they might be under the radar of U.S. regulators who might take a lot of interest in that particular client. Thank you very much for being with us. Joe Marino, excellent partner, White Collar Defense and Investigations Group for Cadwallader, based in Washington, D.C., giving us his take on the world of cryptocurrencies. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.